I warned my children. <laughs> you didn't lock them up that this we time. are recording. No, I just I warned them and tell them stay out of the kitchen. Oh, that's probably the hardest part. They're like, wait, what? We gotta stay out of the kitchen. We can't eat. You know, your two thousand dollars worth of food. Look, every month. That grocery bill is serious. It's true. That grocery bill is something different. <laughs> if they would just stop eating. <laughs> the thing is, you can, put your, you can put your gas money into the car. I mean, into the, the fridge, though. That's good because my, my gas, I just filled up last week, the first time since the first beginning in March. Mm. Just to tell you where I've been going, nowhere. Welcome to the Fascinating Podcast. This is episode 265. I'm Matt, no nickname, Michelotis. I'm J.R. Ray of Sunshine of Foresteros. And I'm Kathy, always winsome Kong. <laughs> and on this week's show, we'll be tackling um, allyship with our good friend Natasha Robinson. But first, we're going to talk about Matt's ever-growing platform of power right. privilege yes thank you i've been hoping that we could do an entire episode dedicated to my power and privilege yes uh, i'm looking back and there have been uh, several already but i just want more yes yes all about you it, yes thank you we had originally <laughs> thought of calling this the michelotis podcast but well it was I'm not taken. on all the episodes and I, I didn't trust my brand <laughs> on the weeks that I'm gone. <laughs> I wouldn't leave it in my hands if I were you either. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm nervous. Also, for uh, several years, I didn't ever actually say my name on the podcast. I just changed my last name into various jokes. So that also would affect it. Um, I believe what Kathy is referring to is that I just finished writing the first draft of the third book of the Sunlit Lands trilogy. So <gasps> it is now off at the editor, which is, whew, wow. So, I'm so thankful. You have now finished a, a fiction trilogy. <laughs> wow. Which is no First small time. feat. Like, how do you feel? Oh, man. I There was a mix for sure. There was this like relief because this last scene of the book I've known for literally for years. So writing it out. And having, and then writing the end, I was like, wow, it's done. But then some of these characters I've really come to love. And I'm like, is this, I might not write some of them ever again, like might be done. Um, so now it is what it is. And I, so I think there's a little bit of like, I don't want to say grief. It's not that serious. Um, but like sadness for sure. Uh, kind of this, this end to something that has been a project for multiple years of my life. Um, yeah. And I wanted to say this because on topic of what we're talking about today. So this series has dealt with a lot of issues of ethnicity, power, privilege, and how do we find solutions to places where power and privilege are creating injustice and those sorts of things. Um, and as I was rereading it, so the beginning of the third book, uh, in the, very close to the beginning, there's a, there's a riot. Uh, there's a protest that's going on that one of the characters gets involved in. And then 
rereading the first two books, this theme that keeps coming up over and over is Madeline talking about how she can't breathe, uh, mm-hmm. which everyone stops and wants to help her with, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a human response when someone says they can't breathe that you want to help them. Uh, so I think even rereading, I had, you know, I reread the third book in one, well, two sittings and looking at it, it was hard not to feel like there were all these resonances with what's happening in our culture today. And then I realized, well, not realized, I already knew this. I think what's interesting for me as a white man writing almost none of the characters are white men in, in this trilogy. There are a few, but none of the main characters are. Uh, realizing how much I rely on my friends who are people of color to read and give feedback and correct things that I've gotten wrong, or just to say, hey, for me as a black man, here's how this line came across. Mm -hmm. Or for me as a native person, the name you chose, here's what it does for me. Uh, And just recognizing how much of a, a community has been necessary for these books um, for them to be what I wanted them to be, which, which is humbling, but also really beautiful, I think. Yeah. Well, I cannot wait to finish the trilogy. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe it's, st- it's very similar to the most recent Star Wars movie. It makes almost no sense. The characters just come upon the stage, then we throw some new ones out. It actively undermines the no second sense. book. Everyone who's died in previous <laughs> books come again. Nice. Yeah, uh, it's it's a disaster that you will love with your friends and family. Well, then it's not like episode nine because I did not love that at all. Neither a, did my family. It's a disaster that you will tolerate because you've been spending decades on this genre and you cannot yet give it up. Um, that also sounds then to me, Kathy, like there's a space for uh, like a Mandalorian esque fan fiction that does the trilogy Absolutely. better than there you go the Matt. So if yes. we want to maybe yeah. collaborate on that, see what we can do. That's um, a good idea. Since, since, as we all remember, Matt hates Baby Yoda. So my uh, my oldest daughter Zoe, there's a particular character she really hates in the trilogy, and she's like, I can't wait till he dies. And I was like, He does not die in this book. And she's like, Well, there is fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. Um, when she writes that uh, after uh, your final book is published, we absolutely have to have her on to talk about fan fiction and what it means to murder someone that your dad didn't take care of. Yes, it's a great idea. She would love to talk about her bloodthirsty writing practices. <laughs> yes. Um, well, uh, we have had Natasha Sistrunk Robinson on the show before uh, when her book Sojourner's Journey came out. Uh, but Kathy, uh, I know you know you're really good friends with her, and and actually, so we had a different topic planned for today in our little planning calendar that of course we keep up to date all the time and never don't know what's going on because we're professionals. Um, but I, with everything going on in the world, we figured we had to do something different than what we were planned. And so uh, in the, the days leading up to the recording, we were all kind of kicking around different ideas and, and we came up with the idea of talking about allyship because that's a question a lot of people, a lot of our listeners are asking right now is how do we be good allies to our black friends right now in this time of protesting and uh, trying to change uh, the way our nation uh, treats black Americans. And so, uh, Kathy, you reached out to Natasha to ask if she had the, uh, the capacity to, to join us. So, so do you want to talk a little bit about um, why she was the first person that came to your mind and, and maybe a little bit about extending that invite? Yeah. So, you know, 
when we had originally talked about this episode, um, for me, the feeling was we can't keep up with the changing news because day to day, hour to hour, things are changing. But yeah. one way we can address what is happening today on a Wednesday so that it's relevant on Monday when it comes out is to talk about what is the work that people, that listeners, particularly white listeners, can do beyond hashtags or watching the news or participating in a protest one day and then not worrying about it down the road. And so I thought about um, Natasha came to mind, one, because she and I are friends. So mm. um, we have a friendship, we have a relationship that has been built on um, trust. And uh, this was one of those relational chips that I was willing to cash in. And knowing um, very much that our Black siblings are, um, they are exhausted, they are weary, they are all of those things. And you'll hear Natasha um, shortly, but I trust her to be honest with us. And I also trusted her to say no if she couldn't do it and didn't want to do it. And I, that was totally fine. Um but for our listeners to understand, yeah, this is this is one of those episodes, even for me, a little hard. Like, oh man, I just I just want to take another nap. <laughs> I just want to take another nap. But um, <laughs> but Natasha was wonderful and responded right away and said, yes, yes. Yeah, and, and I just want to reaffirm what you just said. In light of all of that, it is it is a tremendous privilege for us that that she was willing to come on and and speak to these issues um because a, a lot of oh like she says a lot of this information is out there in different yeah. places that you know people could go find on their own and so her willingness to assemble those things and and you know sort of submit to the way that we're asking the questions and and all of that was it, it was uh, really a, a a tremendous gift on her part to yeah, us um, as i think you'll hear when when we get into the episode yeah so, uh, so if you don't remember from our last episode with, with Natasha, uh, she is a writer, international speaker, leadership consultant, and mentoring coach, and the visionary founder of the nonprofit Leadership Links Incorporated. She is the author of Mentoring for Life, Hope for Us, and her most recent book, A Sojourner's Truth. She's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, a formal, former Marine Corps officer, and uh, has her M.A. from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Natasha has nearly 20 years of leadership and mentoring experience in the military, government, church, seminary, and nonprofit sectors. Uh, so, again... Uh, if that doesn't convince you what an honor it is for us to have her on, then certainly our interview with her will. So let's head over there now. We are here today with returning guest Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Natasha, welcome back to the Fascinating Podcast. We are so honored to have you back. Thank you, lady and gents, for having me. Uh, so I guess first, because the whole world's on fire and everything is terrible, uh, how are you doing? I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm spiritually, emotionally exhausted. Um, every day fighting for joy and hope. And some days I'm doing that better than others. 
we really appreciate you. We, we know it's not a small thing that you would make time to be on the show, to talk with us and to share your wisdom and insight. And we really, really are thankful. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, and we also know that it's because you love Kathy, which is why everyone listens to this show anyway. So. <laughs> That's why I listen. <laughs> I, me too. And my daughter so, and everyone. Yeah, I, I love Kathy. And I trust Kathy and I respect Kathy. And that's why I said yes. Thank you. Thank you. I think that leads me to a good second question. Not only how are you, um, but how can people, friends, allies be helpful? Because I find, I don't know about you, Natasha, that question, how are you? I'm not always sure how to answer that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I will I will say sometimes friends and allies aren't necessarily in the same category too, right? So I think that's important. Yeah. Um, because sometimes allies can reach out and be saying, how can I help? How can I help? And that starts to feel more draining mm -hmm. in this season, mm -hmm. right? Because you can help by doing some work and talking to people that actually created these problems. Yeah. <laughs> so that's how you can help. Well, let's um, talk about that. that. <laughs> let's talk about that question. How can I help? Yeah. Like, what does yes. that mean? When you hear that, what do you think? Yeah, I hear, um, what do you want me to do? But I also hear a ask of me, mm -hmm. depending on who the person is that's asking, mm -hmm. right? And so a friend can help by sending some words of encouragement, some inspiration, a text, a prayer, um, a gift in the mail, mm -hmm. right? Some things that feel comfort, like a friend can help in that way. Um, an ally can help um, by letting the person of color know this is how I'm standing in the gap for you, mm -hmm. right? And that doesn't um, demand or require anything else of that person of color who, frankly, in this season, doesn't have more to give. Mm -hmm. uh, so we, you know, Natasha, before Kathy reached out to you, we were all kind of trying to trying to figure out exactly how we wanted to talk about everything going on, um, in part because everything's changing so quickly all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, we're recording this on a Wednesday, but by the time it airs on Monday, who knows, you know, what the state of things is going to be. And so, you know, one of the things we observed was that for whatever reason, uh, this particular wave of protest and demonstration, uh, has, has captivated a number of folks who were either against, um, the uh, protesting and demonstrating against police violence before or were at best on the fence. Uh, even, I mean, so again, the day we're recording is Wednesday, June 3rd. Yesterday for us, uh, on the same day, Pat Robertson publicly condemned Donald Trump for the way he was speaking to and treating American citizens. Joel Osteen participated in a Black Lives Matter march. And George W. Bush publicly announced his support for the protests and calls for reforms and changes. Um, which many people took as a sign of the end times, um, <laughs> you know, but, but again, like that, that we're seeing so many people who are 
becoming, or at least moving in the directions of allyship who never have before, a lot of people are beginning to ask those questions. What do I do? How can I help? And all of that. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about like the idea of emotional labor and, and why, again, this may sound, this may sound silly, I guess, but I think a, a number of people who are new to the conversation don't understand the concept of emotional labor and why asking how they can help can be damaging to people of color. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, so let me start here. My daughter is, um, she just finished school, seventh grade. And so she's starting some of her summer learning and she has an algebra book. And so she was coming to ask me a question out of her algebra workbook. And so I began explaining to her that everything has a language. Algebra has a language. Uh, Christians, church has a language. Um, my husband and I are both prior Marines, so the military has a language. And so I explained to her, I said, you know, mother used to know that language, but she doesn't know that language anymore. You know, I had to explain to her that your dad might remember that language. And I said, there are certain languages that your mother has um, that she's glad to give you and pass that wisdom along. I said, and the other languages that your mother doesn't have, then this is what your mother pays for. Right. And so I was explaining that to her. And so when I think about this issue of uh, racism, cultural competence, cultural intelligence, um, racial justice, um, all of these things, there is a history and a language here that many people of color, um, whether they're educated professionally in it or not, they have a lived experience or a lived theology that gives them a language um, in which to understand these things, not as isolated incidences, right? We have a language for that. Now, then for people like me and Kathy, who actually maybe do some more reading or have, done, you know, going to school, got some theology behind it, we can articulate that language um, to various audiences in different ways. So I've done this work in professional, quote unquote, secular spaces, and I've done it in Christian, um, mostly evangelical spaces. Spaces. And so all of those different spaces, because of my lived experience, my lived theology, I can articulate and I can adjust my language to communicate in a way that those audiences understand, right? That takes discipline. It takes study. It takes prayer. It takes intentionality, right? That's what it takes. And so you don't get that just because an incident happened yesterday and now it's trending on Twitter. <laughs> and so what that means is for a, for a person who does not have this education, this, um, this conviction, this lived experience, then your starting place is not to come to people like me and ask me to make your work easier. That's not the thing to do. Right. The thing to do is to go to my website or someone like Kathy's website and go and actually start digging. Right. Or Google is also your friends. Right? So, you know, get you some books and actually read them. Like read the books. Yeah. Right. I have I have talks up on uh, YouTube. 
about this. Like, I didn't start talking about this this week. Yes. <laughs> right? like, I have talks up on YouTube. I have a podcast where we've talked about this. I've written a book on discipleship in which I talk about this whole idea of welcoming um, people from every tribe, language, nation, and people group is a theological issue. It is a reality about living in the kingdom of God, right? That's a part of our discipleship. And here we are, Bible study after Bible study, small group after small group, sermon after sermon, where we are never addressing these issues until it becomes something that's trending in the news. And so what I need for uh, brothers and sisters who don't have this lived experience to understand is if you're really serious about doing this work, if you're really wanting to know how you can help, then you have to start disciplining yourself to do this work consistently and learning from people that has already been doing it by looking at the stuff they've already done and supporting the work that they've been already doing. Natasha, can I ask too, I, I think one of the things that happens is people want the emotional labor and they want it free. Like I'm thinking about when you're talking about um, your, your, your daughter needing math tutoring, right? It's one thing for a parent to do it or a friend, but if I need tutoring for my daughter and I call up a professional tutor and say, Hey, could you come for free and uh, tutor my child? They're probably not going to do that. <laughs> right. right. And, and not only do they want it for free, uh, they want it fast. Right. And so some of this is really about our um, I call it like our microwave society. Right. That we want everything instant and we want it to be um, how, we, you know, I want my food quickly and I want it uh, now. Right. You know, and. <laughs> And so I think, and, and, but we also know like, so like fast food, right? That it's not the best food for you, right? It's convenient, but it's not the best thing for you, right? And if you keep eating fast food every day, then you get our age and then you, your body is mad with you for doing it. <laughs> So you can't do that every day. And even though it's convenient and it's comfortable, it's not healthy, right? And so I think that, um, you know, <laughs> uh, I have some great friends and I have a diverse group of friends. And so one of my white friends, she sent me a gift uh, a few months back and it was a coffee mug. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I do drink tea. And she sent me a coffee, uh, coffee mug in which I sometimes drink tea. And the message on the mug is you can pick my brain once that invoice is paid. Right. And I'm like, well, she knows me so well. Right. And that's that's help. Right. That's that's a, yes. that's a blessing in my life, because when I drink that, I'm like, yes, it's a reminder that uh, I need to be sending out these invoices. Right. And because what I have to offer is of great value. Right. And anyone else that has put in the amount of work and has the level of expertise, there's no way, certainly not a white man, you know, um, would would give up that level of um, knowledge and expertise for free. And so, you know, sometimes I would ask a question of because this is the thing about equity for women. Right. And pay as well. Because, you know, I'm a black woman. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, it's like, OK, well, if you looked at my my receipts, right? My credentials, my resume. And you saw a white man, you know, with that same, you know, receipts, resume, credentials. Um, what would you pay that white man, right? And then you need to add about 15 or 20% to that for my emotional labor. 
right? Especially if you wanted me to talk about, you know, race. And, you know, and, and I think part of it is, it's, it's very interesting. Um, I, uh, I'm going to read this really, really short uh, excerpt I saw on Instagram yesterday because I was like, oh, so everyone was blacked out on, on social media. Um, and so this was supposed to be an opportunity for uh, people of color and black people in particular, their voices to be elevated. And so I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but it's um, Z-E-N-C-H-A-N-G-E-A-N-G-E-L. And so I don't want to mispronounce it, but I want to get the spelling because I want to give credit where credit is due. Um, black woman, dear white people, someone apparently white and male messaged me to ask me how I would use income donated. It's not the first time, <laughs> white, watch, watch this now, it's not the first time White folks have expressed worry about how much I might earn. My answer to him was delete, all caps. My social account is not a contract that may make me owe you anything. My answer for the good to any white person asking or thinking or even wondering about black folks money. Number one, you could consider it back pay for the hundreds <laughs> of years of labor you've benefited from right now, not to mention my own daily labor of navigating whiteness in all this arrogant glory. Number two, you could remember that no black person needs to prove themselves ever. Number three, you could just mind your own business. <laughs> Note to white America, I have said this before, some things bear repeating. You can never pay a black woman too much. Our labor is beyond your imagination. Your perpetual collective extraction is beyond comprehension. Give the money back. It is not a contract for control. It isn't pay for shame. It is healing, repent, repair, and heal. It's the way forward, period. Wow. Um, so uh, at, at, the, at the beginning of that comment, you, you mentioned the difference between friends and uh, professionals. And I think some, uh, uh, some number of us are looking around and going, Oh, you know what? I don't have very many friends of color. Maybe that's what I need instead of instead of paying professionals, or maybe in addition to paying professionals, let's. Uh, I, I need to make more friends of color. Uh, how do I do that? What? Uh, how how do, how do I go about uh, filling my friend group with more friends of color that they can hold me accountable and call me out and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. So in this season. And I don't normally yeah. say this, but I'm saying in this season, that is not the thing to do, right? That's not the thing to do. And this is why um, two things I'll give you as examples. Um, one, I'm in a Be The Bridge group. I, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Latasha Morrison's Be The Bridge ministry. If you're not, you should be. And so um, I'm in one of those groups for my area, my local area. And so a white person posted yesterday asking, um, they wanted to start a, a group locally and saying, we're looking for people of color to join in the group. And so I know that's normally the model. I get that. But in this season, I'm asking, like, what, what exactly are you looking for? 
Like, what is that going to mean? Because if it's going to turn into a situation where the people of color are going to get there and start educating all the white people in the group who just starting on the journey, I say wrong answer. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's something different. That's a that's a work. That's work. <laughs> that's not a community. It's not relationship. Mm. And so um, so that's one example um, of that. But I think the other thing about that is um, people. <laughs> People of color in this season, everyone I'm listening to, talking to personally and online and people that do quote unquote public ministry are exhausted, right? They're exhausted. And the, the people of color that are not even doing this publicly, if they are not already friends with you, they're not going to tell you they're exhausted, <laughs> Right. They're not going to tell you they're exhausted or they are afraid or they don't feel safe. Right. And so now is not the time to go seek out your person of color um, with all of your baggage and ignorance to try to get them to be your friend. That is not the time for now. It's not the time for that. Now. Is it important that we have diverse friends? Absolutely. And anybody who knows me and has read anything I've written and written, you would know I firmly believe that. But what I'm saying is there are healthy relationships and there are unhealthy relationships. And if you have not started doing this work as a white person, you can become a very toxic person and create a very unhealthy and even traumatizing relationship for a person of color. And so your work then is to educate yourself, to make yourself a safe person that you can actually enter into a loving and mutually beneficial relationship with a person of color. And Natasha, sometimes the idea of like, I'm going to go make some friends in the community of color is really different than, I'm going to start doing the work and then you make friends while doing the work. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Ding, 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 ding. You just hit it. And I will say this too, that, you know, doing that work, it does mean showing up where people of color are. So maybe they're not coming to you, right? You have to show up where they are, but that also means that you're not going to be in charge. Right. You actually need to be showing up places sometimes where you are actually submitting by choice to people of color and not trying to run everything. And I would submit for Christians, um, for my white brothers and sisters who are in the faith, that is a part of your spiritual formation. Yeah. It makes me think about um, there was a woman I won't we'll call her a Becky. Becky? Is that what you said? Yeah, Becky with the good hair. (laughs) And uh, she had reached out, um, oh gosh, maybe two years ago, asking about, she was doing kind of wellness retreats and things like that and wanted to pick my brain Mm. about how to get more women of color to come. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know what got into me that day, Natasha, but I, my one and only sentence that came out of my mouth was, well, maybe we don't want to go to your retreats. (laughs) 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 I said, you know, I looked at the information and did some research. Maybe we don't want to go. Maybe you and your 
white women wellness is not what we want and we have other places to go or we're going to make other spaces for ourselves. And, yeah, and that, I'm sorry, go ahead. And, and she sent you a donation on Venmo right after, right? <laughs> well, but here's the thing. Usually the response is silence, some yeah. tears. Yes. A lot of right. tears, a lot of explaining intention, a lot of like, we want to be more inclusive and she was silent. Mm. And uh, she said that that was hard to hear. Mm. And that that was not what she was expecting. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And came back. Came back not to ask questions, but to do mm. the work that you had said, Natasha. Right? She mm. went to my blog she followed me on social media. Hmm. She um, started doing work, asking questions of other white people who had been doing the work. Yeah. And yes, Venmo. <laughs> yes. Oh, she yes. did? Yes. 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 Wow. Praise God. Praise God for her. Yes. Praise God. That's good. Yes. That's good. But I think my expectation, and and that was one of you know, hundreds of interactions. Mm-hmm. And you know, Natasha, right? Some of them mm-hmm. are longer. Some of them are shorter on social media or emails or direct messages. But it's one of hundreds. And I have low expectations. But I knew what to expect, which is usually a lot of explaining intention Mm-hmm. That's not what I meant. This is what I'm hoping to do. You don't know me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was some of that. There was some of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's part of the process for white people, to be honest. It's the cycles of grief, right? The denial piece is mm-hmm. is the first thing that comes. Um, I wonder about, JR and I were talking a little bit yesterday about, and I would love both of you ladies, your input and insight on this, if you're willing. We're talking about uh, everyone's experiencing sorrow right now. I don't think anyone is looking at what happened to George Floyd. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate that. I think very few people are looking at that and celebrating. Most people are experiencing sorrow. And I think what many people in the majority culture and the white culture don't understand is that just the sorrow is actually exhausting too. Mm -hmm. And that there's a difference between feeling sad about it and feeling compassion, which means feeling sad and then doing something to change it. Like, can you talk a little bit what happens for you emotionally when you see people? Well, I, I think Natasha, maybe it's partly what you're saying. Like, uh, I'm glad to tweet about how sad I am about what happened and that's sort of the end of it. Like that, that's the totality of its impact on my life. Like, what does that do for you? Yeah, nothing. I mean, you know, um, I have a, so I have a nonprofit organization, Leadership Links Incorporated, that I founded a few years ago. And I have several um, white men on our leadership team mm-hmm. and all of these white men to the person have committed themselves to long-term work of racial reconciliation, racial justice. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them 
on my board of advisors, his wife is a nurse and a conversation. Um, he's been very um, angry during the season of COVID, right? Mm -hmm. um, because his wife is a nurse and um, she didn't have the supplies she needed to keep her safe. And, mm -hmm. um, and so he, as a man who's a loving husband and wants to protect her, feeling powerless to do so. And so that made him angry. And so um, we've been having some conversations about that. And yet, you know, we're still showing up in our nonprofit to work. And most of the programs we have currently um, is with uh, mostly African-American girls. And so we've been showing up in this space. And so he's been expressing his heart in this space. And yet, you know, I'm in the space trying to provide, you know, some um, affirming of their identity, um, some hope and inspiration for them. And this is the the, the teaching that is happening and where he and I are continuing our conversations. So number one, for my white male friend who I love, mm. this feeling that he has with his wife in a moment is what we feel every single day. Mm. And there is no end for it, right? We're not looking for a vaccine. We're not looking for a cure to the pandemic of racism. Right. It's just a part of my daily reality that I do not want my husband driving at night in mm -hmm. Alabama. Mm -hmm. I do not want him going outside of the city in Alabama, that there are certain things that we just don't do. Right. It's the reason I don't have pictures of my daughter plastered all over my social media page because I don't want somebody showing up at her school because I wrote something that they mad about. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so there's this, he's just starting to understand in a different environment what that feels like. And mm -hmm. so for me to share with him that this is how many people of color, certainly black people in America, feel every single day. And I feel this not just for my daughter and not just for my husband, for people who I love deeply that are in other states that I can't touch, mm -hmm. right? Right. And and have feeling powerless aside from the grace and protection of God that you pray over them to do anything about. Right. So so that's the reality. And that's what I need white people to sit with. Right. The stuff that you don't have to think about is what we're defining as white privilege mm -hmm. that we have to deal with every day. And then yet for the compassion that um, we need to extend to people of color is what I'm modeling and exercising for these young people. I just told my girls yesterday, we had a um, mentoring session, like a, a check-in session to make sure, you know, checking in on their emotional, spiritual, mental health in light of uh, COVID, but also in everything that's going on. And, you know, they were sharing prayer requests. These are, these are children. Right. These are children and they're talking about, you know, my own daughter trying to be mentally well and not be consumed by the news. She just turned 13 last mm -hmm. week, you know, two weeks ago. Right. And like and, and so I'm saying to these young people, to these black children, this is not your weight to carry. Right. Mm -hmm. This is not your weight to carry. There is no reason why our children should be losing sleep and having anxiety and feeling stressed out and carrying the burden of this world and of um, 
of a system and of uh, the failures of adults and you know all around them that they should that we should be passing this on to another generation. And so I am saying to these young people, this is where the compassion comes in that this is not your work to carry, mm. right? This is this racism is not a problem you created, right? Right. So it's not yours to fix. Now, I want them to be educated about it. I want them to be open. I want them to be loving. I want them to be humble. I want them to thrive, right, in everything they choose to do. I want them to have access and opportunity. That's what we're doing with my work in my nonprofit, right? I want all of that for them. And I also want them to understand that the people who cause harm and error, if they're truly sorry, if they're truly repented, then they have to do the work to correct the error that they have caused and or benefited from. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And I think we need to, I want to clarify for listeners to, um, you know, I'm a woman of color. I am Korean American, Asian American. My kids are as well. Um, and that is the difference here, right? So there are things that are broadly for people of color, but what's happening right now with Black Lives Matter, with George Floyd is broadly racism, but Natasha, the, the concerns and the weight that your daughter carries are different than the weight that my kids carry. And I think we need our listeners to understand that. So I don't worry generally about my son's driving at night. But in the last few days, as there has been rioting in major cities and highways being closed, stores in the suburbs being boarded up because there are rumors of rioting and looting. I have told my sons, because we live in the white suburbs, you are not allowed to go outside Hmm. after dark. Mm -hmm. But that's not generally their reality. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference. That's the difference between broadly POC (laughs) Mm-hmm. specifically black. Yeah. That there it is there's a social location issue. I mean, we're in the we're in the white suburbs. And mm-hmm. this white suburb likes to think of itself as fairly progressive, but recently being on some of the local Facebook pages, mm-hmm. you know, I <laughs> We have, I have not made us any new friends. Let's, let's just put it that way. <laughs> you have a friend in me, Kathy. You have a friend yes, in me. Yes. Kathy, but you're inviting people to be friends by being your true self. You're yes, letting them know what's exactly, available. Exactly. Exactly. Like if you want to be my friend, this is what you're going to get. But I think that is trying to understand the difference. Like for us in the moment, this is, This is the reality that my family as Asian Americans in a white suburb are going to have to wrestle with. That's a different reality every day. For you, Natasha, for your family, this is a reality every day. 
of the violence. Yeah. And I want to ask you, and we can talk about the, for our listeners, I think there, the, what's tricky right now is that everything seems important and urgent. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in the moment, it's the like people are posting people I did not expect had like their black squares on Instagram, all this mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels urgent. Mm-hmm. What needs to happen, you know, hypothetically yeah. three weeks from now when things are a little quieter? Yeah. Yeah. Um. I will say I, I I believe in the power of prayer. I want praying people to keep on praying, right? I, I, I want that. I want people who are in positions of power, and that's all of us, but uh, to different levels and extent, right? Mm-hmm. To be really thoughtful about how they can see systemic change in their dealings professionally, right? So I'm talking now about workspace, church space. I think that's very important because again, I think as Christians, sometimes within evangelicalism, we talk about racial reconciliation and we are so focused on relationship, relationship, relationship. But you go to work more. Most people that are working people, you spend more time at work than you spend at church and then you spend with your own family, right? So put your, think about what are some ways that you can, you know, have some conversation, implement policies, hiring practices, right? Have some of those things like sacrifice there, put yourself on the line there, Mm -hmm. right? Press the needle there. Um, Because quite frankly, um, you know, people of color, when we're having to do that, there's a there's a higher risk, yeah. right? Yeah. And and um and sometimes there's a higher risk in those spaces whether we do that or not, right? Right. right. Um, sometimes there's a higher risk because there's perception that we're doing that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So we need more, <coughs> excuse me, allyship in professional spaces. I think that's critically critically important. That's number one. Um, I think the other thing is is that. You know, I have a book, um, A Sojourner's Truth, uh, Choosing Freedom and Courage in a Divided World. And I I think it's critically important that uh, we listen to the voices of people of color in this season, their lived experience and their lived theology. Right. So it's more than just, okay, someone has a memoir. But uh, for me, it's important um, in, in the book that I wrote that I was infusing Like, what is God doing? How is God speaking and moving in light of the reality of the history that I know? I'm a a black girl from Orangeburg, South Carolina. I've spent most of my life in the South. I understand that, right? And then I've been um, in multi-ethnic spaces. I've been in predominantly white spaces. I've done, you know, um, this work on different levels. Um, But at every turn, I'm asking, what is God doing and how is God showing up? And what does God require of his people in this season? Mm -hmm. And so I think there's, there's some times where we say, okay, three weeks from now, read a book. Yeah. 
Like read, like read a book, like, like go get like Drew Hart, Trouble I've Seen, like go read some of this stuff, right? Like that's really, really important. And it's not just one book, like read multiple books to start somewhere. I think that's critically, critically important. And then lastly, um, and I've said this, I think briefly before, that you're supporting the work that people of color are doing because not all of our work, there are different ways that we are doing this racial justice work, right? Everyone's not on the street protesting. There's a place for that. And there's there's um, important work in that. There's some people that are focused on policy. There are fo- some people that are focused just on the church. There's some people that's focused on, you know, this in their workplace. There's some people that's focused on this just particularly in the academic arena where they primarily write and research and lecture. So there are all kind of layers and ways that people of color and black people in particular are doing this work every single day. And most of them, I know, they're working in places where their their, um, institutes, their centers, their nonprofits, their churches are underfunded, right? And so if you're really, really serious, I would say, like, put your money where your mouth is, right? Sacrifice some coffees and don't just make one check, unless it's a real big check, but make a monthly commitment. Make a monthly commitment to these nonprofit organizations, to these um, civil rights organizations that are doing this work all the time. That's the stuff that we need to see happen right now beyond the moment. That's where we're going to see real uh, repentance, redemption, reparations and transformation. Yeah, because do you need more white friends? I love the white friends I have. And I will just leave it at that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Natasha, that first point that you made about um, allies in professional spaces, um, I think that's that's one that, uh, one, it's actually a relatively simple step white people can make uh, because it just requires us to speak up and pay attention uh, in the spaces we already are. But, um, you know, yesterday in our little podcast chat group, we were having a conversation and and one of us was asking about um, a a friend that was posting actually about podcasting and and basically made a joke in poor taste about the riots. And he was uh, saying, you know, should I should I say something or not? Am I acting out of anger or whatever? And and Kathy, I thought you offered a very uh, timely and gentle uh, reminder that I would I wondered if you wouldn't mind uh, sharing again. Yeah. Um, gentle, Kathy? You were gentle with someone? <laughs> these Praise were her, God. These Praise were her God. friends. They were her friends. <laughs> you know, I can be winsome. Yeah. Right? Um, that's the word that gets used. Uh, I can actually read it. I just um, said I want to encourage all of you, my white brothers, to stop bending over backwards to constantly make yourselves and your white friends comfortable. I say this Mm. as someone who daily has to contort herself to function, Mm. some days more or less than others, in a society that didn't think of me as valuable or even human. When Mm. a friend posts things that are in poor taste and public, a private call may be necessary, but everyone saw that post. People Mm -hmm. need to hear from others that certain things, no matter how much we want and need levity, should not be done so at the expense of others. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it's interesting. I do see even now that there are white 
people trying to stand up, right? They're awakening, but they're doing it in such a way that they don't want to offend Mm -hmm. their whiteness. Mm -hmm. They don't want to... I I saw, actually, it was on the thread of a white man, and he was saying things like, you know, well, I guess we won't see eye to eye to another white person. Mm-hmm. And I jumped on and was like, of course. And I don't want to see eye to eye unless it's that white person understanding that this is about systemic racism and I don't care how many black friends they have. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. Uh, it's actually very sorry. interesting. Um, I was just gonna say briefly, um, one of the articles I quoted um, in my book and I keep coming back to was written by an uh, Asian American woman. Um, and uh, she was writing about eight, ways people of color are tokenized in nonprofits. Mm. And one of the ways she mentioned was using people of color against other people of color. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's very important because it points out um, one way that um, that can be a very uh, visceral reaction, right? And, and so sometimes unintentionally because whiteness is so often centered. Mm -hmm. Um, The people that have friends that are people of color, they have a tendency to use those friends as armor against other people of color. Right. So, so so say if your person of color who feels tokenized and, you know, has, you know, feels comfortable and feel like they're better human because they're attached and have close proximity to whiteness, um, they'll use that person who has the same thought processes as them because it's benefiting them or so they think until they get pulled over by the cops and they realize they look brown like everybody else. And so they will use that person and their thought um, as a uh, you know, people say weaponized. I think it's a little bit strong language, but they'll use it against another person of color, right? In the same way, folks be trying to use MLK, right? Like I, I, I when I could tell you the amount of white people we've seen try to use MLK to tell black people what MLK thought. I just saw a tweet last week where a white person was responding to MLK the third yes. about what daddy thought. Yes. <laughs> Do you understand what I'm saying? And so that, like, like the audacity of of, of, of whiteness in that way, like it, it's a performance, and people don't, you know, people don't understand that. And so, um, I just think we have to, we have to, and and I think again, some of it is not about intention. Some of it is about ignorance. And I'm not trying to speak down to people in that. I mean, you just lack the knowledge in it. Right. And so the way to not respond in ignorance is to get smart on an issue. Humble yourself and become a student of an issue. That's what we have uh, here, our local school board here where I live. Uh, our, our school district's about half Latino. Uh, so my kids grew up speaking Spanish. Uh, and have tons of friends in the Latino community, but there's consistent issues of white supremacist action in the school district. Mm-hmm. And uh, this week, one of our, someone on our school board who's been on it for years tweeted about the, what's happening in Seattle with the, the riots there. And he said two words, fire hoses. 
Oh my God. And yeah. I was going to ask you who was on the school board. That was going to be my question. Yeah. Oh, it's all, it's all white folk. And yep. get them out of there. He, well, he, he actually, so it's, everyone comes after him. And then he says, Oh no, I was saying buildings are on fire. We need to put them out. No one oh. believes him. Of course. Uh, and he resigns, which I was amazed by, like, uh, everyone's calling, you know, and here's the interesting thing. The person who's been the, the superintendent of our district, has, there's been multiple issues over the years. Every time someone says something to him, Hey, there's racism. Hey, there's white supremacy. He, this is every sentence starts with this as the adoptive father, uh, with a multiracial family. That's how he always starts. <sighs> And I think what's so hard for people to understand is you can be married to a person of color and still be racist. Oh, oh, you can oh, oh. have you can have children who are of mm. another race and still be racist. You mm-hmm. can have friends who are of another race and still be intensely racist. That mm-hmm. uh, that is not it's not a shield and it's not a guarantee. And in fact, most of us, most of us white people who have friends and family in the community of color are still dealing with the reality of having been racialized our entire lives. And that's not something that just disappears because you marry someone from another race or another ethnicity. So I, yeah, that, that particular excuse I find very grating. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, okay. We need to wrap up. Uh, and talk a little bit about what's fascinating us this week, which uh, it, it can be a pop culture thing. It can be something related to what's going on. It can be a resource for people or an organization uh, that uh, is helpful given the current state of the world. Uh, is that is that something we all feel good about doing today? Can we talk about that for a yeah. few minutes? Great. Sure. I think offering at least uh, some little small ray of sunshine feels pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, JR. JR, ray of sunshine for us. That's hear that me. That's me. Let's hear what you got, Ray. I mean, I feel like people call me a ray of sunshine at least as often as Kathy is called winsome. I think he... Well, <laughs> I, I more often hear comments about something about the sun not shining when they're talking to you, JR. But... <laughs> well, fine. I'll recommend a horror novel that I really enjoy. Oh, fine. Okay, great. Um, so this is a novel by uh, an author named T. Kingfisher, and it's called The Twisted Ones. And uh, I'll just say it's pretty hard to creep me out and... Uh, there are definitely a few nights that I kept reading because I knew if I shut off the light, something was going to come get me. So, <laughs> well, that was a rant, sunshine. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. A, it is a Lovecraftian novel, if that means oh. anything to anyone. So, oh, uh, darkness. Yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know. It was really good, really interesting. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed how it was constructed. It was uh, in in the in the in the manner of a number of kind of Lovecraftian stories, it was sort of the story of someone finding someone else's story about another story. So there are several layers of narrative um, that all sort of lead to the person investigating and discovering this sort of, you know, uh, cursed knowledge sort of thing. So uh, yeah, I thought it was really good, really creepy. That, that That's great. Thank you. Uh, Kathy, what do you got? Well, a couple things. I'm trying to pick the, the the brightest ray of sunshine. That's kind of hard for me today. Um, I am fascinated by masks 
becoming some sort of fashion statement. (laughs) So strange to me how different brands are now coming out with their brand of masks, um, especially in light of uh, protests that happened just a few weeks ago around uh, states still being closed and the requirement to wear masks and social distancing. I just think it's really funny, ironic, so U.S., right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't even know what to think about that. And then the, the connection to that is like the price gouging <laughs> around <laughs> fabric. Oh, so, really? Okay. So <laughs> this is only because I know how to sew and I have this ancient sewing machine. Um, and I also still work out of mom guilt. So <laughs> Elias, Elias, <laughs> Our youngest, who is a senior in high school, no longer. He's a rising freshman in college. Uh, In their senior drive-through to drop-off books, which, by the way, listeners, my son had to dust off his books Mm, because he had to find them (laughs) in the (laughs) house because he was so checked out and then was like, oh, I need to dust them because there was this big layer of dust. Um, They had the opportunity to take a picture with the principal wearing a mask and social distancing. And so, of course, I was like, I need to make a mask um, using the fabric of his college that he's going to. And I look online. I can't find anything at the fabric store, so I go on eBay Oh my gosh, I cannot believe I paid $20 for a quarter yard of fabric. $20 for a quarter yard of fabric. Now, Kathy, for someone it. who is is not as well versed in fabric purchasing, what what should that have cost? Oh, that should have cost like a fourth of that. Oh, okay. How, how's he mm-hmm. look though? It looks awesome, and I made four of them with that fabric. So, and you sold them for twenty dollars each. No, yep. I gave him the option of keeping them or sharing them, and he's still undecided. Oh, nice! Since he needs, um, he will need them in the fall. I do have another serious follow-up question. Yeah, um, I know since you're a journalist, I, I'd be curious to know if you think that the rise in popularity of masks has anything to do with the success of the masked singer on Fox. <laughs> <laughs> do you watch that show oh yeah I we do. Say, I'm, surprised that, I'm surprised that's a success i didn't think that was gonna land yeah. i was like I didn't think so here's the either. thing here's the thing it's gonna it's on its way down and here's how i know yep. it just yep. finished its third season the yeah. first two seasons the four judges were like when people would get unmasked and it was some famous celebrity they would be like why why are you doing this like <laughs> this is the dumbest show why why like we're having fun we're laughing at how ridiculous it is but this is so dumb and we can't believe anyone wants to do it in season three they were like you know this show is pretty special and pretty one of a kind and it's a real honor to have you with us and i was like here it goes they started taking themselves seriously they started drinking their own kool-aid and now it's on its way out like this show cannot stand under the weight of its own absurdity and so <laughs> as soon as they start taking themselves seriously and stop being in on the joke, it's going to fall apart. That's my prediction. Well, 
I'm a world of dance girl myself. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, what do you got? Uh, so one of my professors at university was Percival Everett, who is a contemporary novelist. Uh, he's African-American. I think one of the best contemporary novelists in the United States today. Um, but you got to check out his novel Erasure. Uh, it's about, uh, it, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's biographical. He would not like me to say that. Um, but it's about a black novelist who keeps being told that his book is not black enough. Uh, and there's a white woman who has this incredibly popular novel called Weeze All Lives in the Ghetto. Uh, and they're saying, can't you write something more like that? So he, it's the, the book is really funny and sad and pretty savage at different places, but he changes the title of his book to My Pathology. Uh, and then eventually just changes it to the F word. And, uh, <laughs> but the whole novel is sort of this exploration of what does it mean to be a black man in academia uh, mm -hmm. and, and in the world of literature. And it's, it's a beautiful book also. It's just really well-written and uh, I love it. So that's called Erasure by Percival Everett. Mm. Check it out. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it's great. It really is. It's from two, I, I, it's like 20 years old. He's done a bunch of other books. They're all great. Wow. So. Natasha, what's fascinating you this week? Um, I guess two things, um, not as entertaining, but, but facts, right, um, of our present reality. So I'm fascinated by the amount of people we have out protesting and physically touching yes. in the discipline. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that. And so I've seen a couple of interviews, um, one with a black man, one with a black woman, and, you know, the, the journalist says, you're not concerned about being out here. And the black man, mind you, had a child on his uh, shoulder. The child probably was three or four years old. He says, yes, I am concerned. And black man says, but I also know that I can be shot out here and die, you know, tomorrow by the cops. Mm. So um, this pandemic of racism is important enough for me to be out risking my life for the pandemic of COVID um, or coronavirus, whatever we calling it now, mm -hmm. um, you know, that you know, that's worth the risk because um, I know this other pandemic can also kill me, mm -hmm. right, in my life. And so I, I was fascinated by that. And I'm fascinated by the other people that are out there. But, you know, they're, you know, modeling the way of Jesus, willing to like literally put their lives um, down for the sake of another person. So to me, that's um, that's fascinating and, and interesting and, and gives me some hope. And I think lastly, um, I've been going back to my old school gospel music. Um, because I miss, you know, there are times I've, I've grown up in church where I'm in black church and a preacher is sweating and we're in church for three hours and people like shouting and running around and tearing on the floor. And I just need some of that in my life right now mm. um, to make it through. And so I've been going back to my black gospel music. So my days are starting a lot later because I have to get my mind right to focus on the day. Mm -hmm. And so I met with the girls yesterday for the nonprofit. And one of the girls' mom um, messaged me. She said, she said, you just smiled that whole call. We did a video call. <laughs> and she said, that's just Natasha. She's like a mother bear. She just loved and so glad she could see y'all. And I'm like, yes, that was definitely part of it. But the other part was I was going in on my old school gospel yeah. with them because they deserve better. Yeah. So I wanted to show better for them. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by the power and the strength of the old things to carry us through um, the hard times mm. that we are in now that carry people through previous hard times. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's amazing. It's great. 
So Natasha, where can we find you online? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So a few ways. Um, so if you're your ministry Christian folks, you can um, find me at my website, Natasha S. Robinson, S is in Sam or Sistrunk, my main name, Robinson at uh, Natasha S. Robinson dot com. And all of my social medias you can you can do there. So, you know, there are several th- talks about, you know, this these issues on my YouTube channel. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. So you can find all that there. If you're interested in some professional help, coaching, consulting, mentoring, you want to be better, um, go to my business page, t3leadershipsolutions.com, the letter T, the number three, leadershipsolutions.com. And I'm taking clients there now doing virtual coaching um, for that. Um, I do have a podcast, it's a journal's truth. Um, the whole first season I'm talking about uh, these issues and, and going through it with b- black women, <laughs> um, having conversations with black women about a lot of these issues that we're talking about. Um, one that comes to mind is one of my mentors um, who I love dearly. She went to HBCU Bennett College in North Carolina, was a part of the sit-ins um, of the Woodworth Counter, which started the sit-ins uh, all throughout the country. And she went to jail for that um, as a young person. And so she has a fascinating interview on my podcast. Her name is Joyce Garrett. So I would love for people to go um, to see that she's just a wonderful human. But again, a lived the experience will be good to find there. And then lastly, my book is Sojourner's Truth. Um, we're going to have a book discussion in July uh, with my nonprofit. It's going to be free online on Thursdays in July, um, starting the second Thursday of the month. Um, so you can go ahead and buy those, buy them in bulk, right? For your small group and your Bible study and your white friends that's trying to get bulk. Y'all do it together and learn from each other. Um, and then we'll be here to have a conversation with you um, with some exciting people. Um, and we're going to do that. So that's the book. And then my nonprofit is Leadership Links Incorporated. So you can find Leadership Links, L-I-N-K-S dot org. Um, and we are on all the socials as well. And you can um, find us there and find out more about our work and how we, you can support it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Natasha. We will make sure we put links to all of that stuff in the show notes at fascinatingpodcast.com so that you can make sure you can find Natasha, find her organizations. And obviously, hopefully, if you are listening closely, uh, support her for all of the work that she's doing. Uh, I think it's amazing that you're doing a free book discussion in July, talking about doing stuff, uh, putting stuff out there. That's, that's incredible. And, uh, her book, A Sojourner's Truth, is available everywhere. Uh, Natasha, thank you again so much for being with us and sharing your wisdom. It has been a real honor. Thank you all so much for having me. Uh, this has been episode number 265. Our guest has been Natasha Sistrunk Robinson. Uh, we will be back next week with another great episode. Until then, stay safe out there. Uh, wear your masks. Quit touching your face. You know the drill by now. Bye.